Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. As always, I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Vent. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this is someone who I've known pretty much since childhood, but through Vent, we've reconnected and will hopefully be able to bring you a deep and engaging conversation here on the Just Checking In pod. He's someone whose journey I greatly admire and has had to navigate obstacles across both his professional and his personal life to get where he is today. So I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Farai Hallam onto the Just Checking In pod. Farai is a senior referee officer at the Football Association and was previously a professional football player for Stevenage before moving into refereeing, which is a path rarely taken by modern day footballers it's fair to say fry welcome to the just checking in pod mate it's been a very long time since we chatted properly probably about 15 years yeah, a long while. um but for those who don't know we we actually went to a primary school together didn't, didn't we although both of us yeah. um look a lot different than now than we did back then especially around the old midriff yeah I know. And, uh, a lot's changed in the past and the facial hair now to both sporting mustaches <laughs> hopefully not for too much longer <laughs> Perfect. So um, now we've got that out of the way, shall we get started? Yeah, let's crack on. So the first topic I wanted to get in with you for right is, is your work at the FA and your role of senior referees officer. So, so the listeners understand, what does your job entail on a day-to-day basis and why was refereeing a path you wanted to take? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very lucky to work at the FA. Um, a job in football is something that uh, I'm very grateful to have. Um, my role kind of sits around three different areas. Uh, the first one being county FAs. Mm-hmm. So we have 50 county FAs covering every corner of the country. So mm-hmm. I get out and about a lot, um, which is good. Uh, sometimes makes a routine difficult to have, but mm-hmm. I'm always meeting new people, which which I'm very grateful for. Uh, secondary around referee development. So uh, probably not known to the average person, especially to the average football fan, um, that referees don't just turn up on a Saturday or a Sunday there's a lot of work that goes into trying to make people better give people opportunity to prepare people for the next generation of people mm. we might see on the TV on the Premier League mm. on the Football League um, so there's a lot of work in, in, in terms of um, offering guys and girls an opportunity to, to get through the football pyramid uh, and I guess the last bit is around marketing and communications mm-hmm. as is no surprise to anyone that mm. refereeing doesn't always get the best press and can sometimes be seen in a bad light um, I guess it's our challenge as the FA um, to improve the image of refereeing and we also about raising the profile of it and mm. explaining the good, um, giving some context to some of the challenging areas, mm. um, but to make it more attractive and, and understandable to the average football mm. person. And you talked about those challenges there, I just wanted to quickly touch on mm-hmm. that. What do you feel like are the big challenges for sort of raising the profile of referees but also making sure that their issues their personalities the decisions are communicated in the right way yeah I think one of the biggest things as you say there Fred is around humanising refereeing and actually you take out the fact that it's a person stood in a black kit in the in grassroots football probably on their own mm. you take out the fact that there's a person there'll be a teacher a doctor a pilot a builder an electrician whoever refereeing brings all walks of life it's open to all society and mm. um, you get people from all walks of life and actually humanising it. And once referees become humanised, it's a lot easier. Mm. I think people tend to be a bit more empathetic. People understand, actually, 
you're going to make mistakes just like I will make mistakes. Mm. Um, but when it's dehumanised, it's it's far, far easier. Mm. Uh, I think the, the humanising part is really interesting, actually. And I think one sport that's really done that well is is rugby union mm. uh, sports I should say is rugby union and cricket because they've actually mic'd up the referees yeah. and especially rugby union now you see the full breadth of their personality for, for good and for bad sometimes mm-hmm. in the case of rugby union refs um, but do you think that's something that, that football needs to look at when it comes to humanising people more? Yeah it's, it, it's difficult because I think on field um, football's a very passionate environment it's always been a very working class game mm-hmm. um, and, and with that has brought I guess, some working class cultures that have stuck with stuck with the country for, for years and years um, where I think we really work is around people's body language so mm. actually okay people don't hear your voice because we also when you're refereeing two or three people might hear your voice mm. but thousands of people will see your body mm. and your actions and it's always about being calm think about when everything's going off and ev- people are expecting the decision there's 50,000 people looking at one person mm. that person to be cool as ice that's, that's one hell of a character trait mm. and I think we see in refereeing that people take their refereeing skills that they've learned and developed and put it into their personal and professional lives mm. you see their professional careers start to thrive and that's it, that's it it's conflict management it's staying calm under pressure it's leadership it's decision I guess. making yeah, managing leadership, people mm. management people conflict management these are all things which at 18 16 when a lot of people start refereeing mm. there's a lot of young referees now the majority of new referees now are under the age of 19 when these people start, they don't necessarily have those skills, so for them to build it up is, is fantastic. Mm. I think it's fair to say that in football, refereeing is a job that most people in the sport and outside it might not want to do. I think yeah. purely because of the, abu- the abuse side, the, scru- the extra level of scrutiny that I think is different to other sports. And I think in other sports, there's sort of more of a, um, an understanding that referees do make mistakes. Mm. I think especially in rugby union um, and cricket, they... If a referee makes a mistake, the, the head coaches are often very, very reluctant to criticise them publicly. You do see a couple of them every now and then. Warren yeah. Gatland and, and Eddie Jones sometimes yeah. have, a, have a, a... Well, Eddie Jones has stopped having a pop, but he used to. Um, but they are very reluctant to criticise them because they want to respect that idea of the, the umpire or the referee. Yeah. Um, you know, tribalism is rife in the game. Mm-hmm. And it's something that is probably the most rife out of any sport in the world, yeah. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. You know, particularly in the Premier League and, and top, what I found as a football league fan when, I, when we got, my team got into the Premier League, there was so much bias, you know, from every team about their own decision that you don't get as much in the EFL. I think a lot of people are sort of like, oh, well, we got lucky with that decision. That wasn't a penalty, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. This is a bit of a loaded question, but why did you want to potentially put yourself through that? Yeah, so... It's funny listening to that in that football, I think we're very fortunate that's such a passionate game mm. um, and that the tribalism, the passion that people have for their teams, it, it's more than just football. Mm. For so many people, their football club is their life. People mm. will commit significant money, mm. significant of their own time, their own holiday, their family's time. Uh, it brings people together that in other walks of life may never have crossed paths. So I think we're, we're really, really fortunate to have that passion in, passion in football that, as you say, may not exist in, in every other sport. Um, and I guess f- for me, that was kind of part of my want to stay in football. So I kind of, as you alluded to earlier, yeah, I was fortunate to have a, a playing career for a few years and mm. uh, came to an end uh, for a number of reasons. Um, probably just wasn't good enough to make it in the professional game, if I'm being honest. Uh, coupled with five operations, which is never helpful. Mm. Uh, so my body also didn't quite <laughs> agree with it. Um, but then a, a passion and a desire to stay in the game because... Ever since I was 
eight, nine years old, Saturday had been football day, whether mm. I'd been playing or watching. Um, it had always been football day and I didn't want to lose that. I'd mm. committed six years of my life to playing three of those, it being my job, it being my full-time career. That was, every, that was everything. Mm. I couldn't then just give that up and not and go and do something mm. else. I, I needed something to keep me involved. And, a challenge. Yeah, yeah. A, a massive challenge and yeah. an opportunity to potentially get back to the professional game. Um, and also, Saturday, 2.55, I know I'll be in the tunnel, but walking out in front of 1,000 people um, at the moment and hopefully in the future maybe a few more and that's a, that, that's a real buzz and something which I don't think will ever go I'm, I'm sure you, you hear from lots of ex-athletes and ex-sportsmen uh, and women the buzz the highs and lows that adrenaline yeah. the endorphin rush yeah exactly that and it's there are good days there are bad days there are days which are easy there are days which are really challenging And but it's always that I never know what's going to come whether you're in the 100 metres final or mm. whether you're in a game of football mm. you never know you can never predict what's going to happen mm. Verbal abuse is something that referees encounter right from the grassroots, you know, to the top of the professional game, both from in the stands and on the pitch. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that sometimes I've indulged in that, um, you know, in past Huddersfield games, probably a bit, probably a, a bit more well behaved than I used to be. Um, and it's something I'm, uh, conversation with you and conversation with people in the game, I'm actively trying to quite stop now, but it is something sometimes you get a bit caught up in the moment and you shout something and a, a, a bad decision or whatever but for the listeners just give me a bit of insight into some of your experiences when you were starting out as a ref in your qualifications and then where you are now yeah so um, I'll start I guess where I am now actually because it probably gives better context so the level I'm at now I'm quite protected as mm. a referee uh, I'm in a team I, I lead a team of three out sometimes I, I lead a team of four mm. um, as stewards there's safety officers, there's people paying to get in, mm. there's grounds, there's stadiums, mm. it's protected. Uh, people will agree, disagree with my decisions. We talked about that tribalism often. It's 11 people love my decision and 11 people hate it. <laughs> Part and parcel of being the person in the middle. Mm. Um, so the level I'm at now, it's a lot more about just managing the people, managing the event. Because mm. um, actually my, m- myself, I'm, I'm, I'm always protected. But, but then I hark back uh, five and a half years ago now, actually, so when I started refereeing, I started mm. refereeing in grassroots football, mm. Sunday morning, out on my own, turning up, thinking... To a random place you don't know, you don't know anyone there. Yeah, didn't yeah. know anybody. Yeah. Are you the ref? I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I am today. <laughs> um, it was a bit of a surreal feeling. Um, but, but starting off there, and it was all just about protecting yourself, enjoying the day, and actually it was a really enjoyable day. Mm. Um, but it was just about... you. You're out, you're out of your comfort zone and that's mm. what refereeing is for a lot of people that's why the real challenge I think is if you get people to get that bug if people stay in refereeing beyond a year they'll probably stay for loads of years mm. but as always when you try something new it's not for everyone but there are so many people out there who would make fantastic referees mm. and some people don't know it mm. some people are extremely shy and think I could never ever do that mm. come into refereeing and four years later they're refereeing in front of 250-300 people mm. and you just go look at how you've progressed as a person mm. forget the game forget where you are forget the finance you as a person have completely changed and mm. um, um, yeah it's it can be astounding I always admire massively people that spend their life in grassroots football because grassroots football is the majority I mean mm. we see the glitz and glamour of the Premier League huge attendances in the EFL even in the National League in the mm. fifth tier of English football some big attendances professional football but you look at youth football girls football disability football and you, you your typical Saturday and Sunday grassroots football. That's the majority of football in this country and there are so many referees. You have about 28,500 nationally who mm. are active every year. 
these people give up their weekends, give up their time because they love football to go and be involved in that game. And I admire that massively. Uh, you talked about some of the challenges. I think it's pro- in youth football, uh, it's probably parents. I was going to say, that's going to be my next question. What, yeah. Have you found, in the early days, did you find it was abuse from parents, not kids, that was the problem? Uh, yeah, or both? Yeah, <laughs> or parents telling their kids to abuse the ref? <laughs> yeah, players are never a problem. Really? Players are never a problem, yes. At, the, you, at that level? Yeah. At, at, at most levels. Most levels, okay. You'll always have... You're managing yeah. 22 people, so there may be one or two people that are just not going to get on with you. Mm. That's part, of being, that's part mm. of being human, though. If anything, I'd be worried if everyone loved me, so I'd go, in I'm human not making, life, I'm not making yeah. decisions that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something's, something's not right here. But it often, especially in youth football, it's, it's the parents on the side, and I'm a big believer in that the behaviour starts with the individual. Of course. I think we talk... Hate about, is taught. Yeah, Prejudice is taught. We, we, Learn, talk, yeah. we talk a lot about uh, reacting, referees should do this, FA should do this, clubs should do this, league should do this. Why not spin it around on the individual and go, actually, mm. you manage your own behaviour. Don't worry about what anyone else is doing. Mm. People often say, oh, but I see it on the TV. But that doesn't excuse what mm. you do for being What right. about ism, isn't it, really? Yeah. That's what it is. Whereas, yeah. actually, if you took responsibility for your own behaviour... It wouldn't be an issue because mm. you would then take it on board of yourself to self-manage, self-police with people around you. You look at some of the best things in society, they're self-police, self-managed. Mm. They don't need a, an authority or a governing body. They're just, that's how it is we, because we don't do that. Mm. In those early days um, when you were starting out as a ref, you know, what were the, the sort of best experiences you had that maybe validated your position at that age or someone put an arm around you as a young kid and said okay I know this kid's a, he's 18, 19 he's a young ref I'm going to help him out and what were some of those sort of more maybe more challenging or harrowing experiences either from players coaches or from the parents themselves that probably gave you grief yeah so the um, more challenging moments um, are often things that are new to you so I remember my first in, in refereeing it was called a mass confrontation so Everyone piled. crowding the ref, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or not even crowding the ref, but crowding with each other. Mm. I think a bad tackle had gone in. Oh, I see. Yeah, everyone yeah. comes together. As a referee, you're going, "Oh my god, what someone's going to kick off." Yeah, what, how, how do I manage this? Because there are bodies here. I physically cannot separate these bodies, so I've mm. got to take my, take a view and watch it. And actually, that at the moment was a massive learning curve. I thought, I think, I think before that, my mind had always been, "Oh, I can, I, I can go in. I can be the firefighter. I can mm. stop it all. I can calm it all down." Mm. There are times, and in life in general, where you need to realise, I have no influence here. Mm. I need to just take a step back and then I might need to react. Mm. Uh, we talk so much in refereeing about preventing things happening, the stopping bad tackles mm. and noticing when people get frustrated, noticing when players are committing a lot of fouls because they're likely to go and commit a mm. bigger foul. So actually, that is the majority of what we do, but there are times when you need to go, well, I can't stop stop that and and I just have to react to it and and that was a massive learning curve but that also links into one of my best experiences that when the second time that happened I think in my third year refereeing so these things don't happen very often Mm. when that happened and again it was never towards me it was players on players coming together with each other take a seat (laughs) take a seat (laughs) Take, take a view take everything in process all the information deal with it afterwards and at full time for a, a, a manager to come up to you and go, you know what, ref, I thought you handled that amazingly because the game could and probably should have been Boiled a farce after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it should have just been carnage afterwards. Mm. But he said, actually, the fact that you didn't get involved and you stayed calm aided it massively and mm. that everyone respected you for it. So mm. there are things, and, and that wasn't from a referee in person, that was from someone whose own team were involved. Mm. Um, so football has it. And, and people recognise when 
a good acts happen mm. as well as they recognise when things that aren't so good mm. uh, that, that, that issue of control is a really important point that I think some people lose um, when they see referees refereeing I, when in the AFL I think the big problem for me is I think what, what fans see is consistency or because they can't hear a ref and they see the body language towards players they they might miss they might have a accurate conception or they might have a misconception about how that referee is talking to those players how important is it, is it for referees to talk to players like they're adults basically yeah c- communication is everything mm. I always say that outside of the Premier League where you have 24 cameras scrutinising every decision you make where there it is solely about decision making but at every other level of the game it's about managing people mm. and that's, that is all you're doing you are managing people and you're having to communicate and that be by, by voice by your body and you communicate well and you get people to buy into you even when you make mistakes people will accept you mm. people will go you know what but he or she is a good person he or she is doing their best because mm. every referee in the country will go out and do their best I've never and I've met a fair few referees do work if thousands I've never met one who goes I'm not that bothered by it mm. or I don't care if I get decisions wrong I think it's a it's a misconception that game goes um, game goes by referees made a controversial contentious decision mm. but they get in the car and they forget about it it's the complete opposite mm. they'll get in the car they'll be thinking about it probably go home Sunday they'll probably be ringing what's happening all their mates saying this is what happened if there's a video of it the video will be going to everyone mm. what do you think actually referees care more than people know mm. uh, massively and it's it's such a community that I know today my game whatever happens there'll be something for me to think about something to do better the week after mm. what sports do you find obviously we can always get better in every walk of life <laughs> do you look at any sports outside of football as and the way they referee or perhaps different facets of football in other, in other countries mm. um, that you look at to get better here yeah so I think we're in actually a very good place through work I've experienced other cultures in terms of football specifically and South America's different level. Yeah, South America. So, so I, I was with referees from Costa Rica and Honduras uh, only seven or eight weeks ago. And the environment they referee in, I don't think we would accept in this country. Mm. Very hostile, no communication with anyone. It's Every game is about protecting yourself. So in that sense, we're in a very fortunate position. Uh, but I do look at rugby union, and not in anything they do on field, mm. not in anything they do on the match day. But actually, I, I really admire the fact that in pre-season the uh, referees for the Premiership mm. will go in and will just sit down and chat with the players from each club. Mm. So actually they'll go and have lunch at Saracens, at Wasps, at Harlequins, wherever, and they'll talk through expectations for the year, if there's mm. been any law changes, amendments, anything... The high that, tackle was a big one, yeah, wasn't it, in the World the, Cup? The, yeah. Things that are um, going to be contentious in the new year, mm. they'll do it in a very informal environment, sat down speaking with them, and that just builds that rapport of, as we said earlier, humanising what you're doing and actually... Wayne Barnes is a person. I was going to say yeah, Wayne Barnes is Wayne Barnes and Nigel Owens for me are yeah, the best. But Wayne yeah. Barnes is the way he communicates. He's just different level when yeah. you hear him speak. When the way he talks to players and the way he communicates exactly the decision that he makes yeah. as well. And then sometimes he'll do a post match interview and they'll ask him challenging questions. And he's got a response for every single one. Yeah, and he's he's got I say the gift of the gab, but he puts his point across so eloquently in that you hear him on field and off field a question will be asked and his point will just... It will be in... Everyone will be like, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> because he speaks in the people's language. He speaks in term and terminology that we would all understand. Mm. He doesn't speak in alienated language mm. that no one gets. Rugby's a complicated game with yeah. the rules, especially. Oh, yeah. real, real complications, but he speaks in a way that everyone goes, oh, 
I didn't know that, but I get that. Do you, do you think there's, there will ever be a space for when referees can potentially do post-match interviews or do interviews after the game? Because I think one of the frustrations in football with football fans is that because they're not mic'd up and because they don't hear anything about the ref, they see them as this sort of, not faceless figure, but someone who makes a decision, a decision goes against them and they think that, obviously, like you said, they think, like you said, that the, the, ref, the decision doesn't affect them um, and they're sort of, they don't see the accountability where mm-hmm. they might be demoted, they might have points, yeah, you know, yeah. in those sort of systems that I hear about how, mm-hmm. how refs are managed. Um, do you think there'll ever be a space for when we can get more exposure to that do you think yeah, in, so a, in a place in time something that's been spoken about for years now why don't we have the referee on post-match mm. so, and I, I can understand why people want it I, I, I understand that accountability but there is accountability albeit it's not necessarily public and it, at the forefront yeah. it's open yeah. but it's not pushed in front of uh, media in front of people's faces mm. I always say that you'll never have a media outlet want to put a referee on when they've given a penalty that's correct mm. they'll never oh, want, oh 100% yeah, yeah, yeah they will never want to put a referee on that's got a red car challenge correct mm. or an offside decision that is 100% correct and actually replayed on the score that's a really good point it would never happen it would only be on the negative and actually it would just be scapegoating someone to say mm. so what happened here and you would go I thought this but the video shows this mm. and, and we already know what we know mm. that the referee has given a penalty as an example but the video with the 24 cameras that we see on the Premier League shows that the penalty shouldn't have been given. Mm. And actually with VAR, I think that'll be alleviate. I know it's a bit controversial at the moment. <laughs> um, fine-tuning, I think I'll call it, mm. in its infancy. Um, but I always say, what's the benefit? Because when a manager comes out and speaks to the press, they can deflect, they can talk about mm. the match officials. And so many managers deflect, yeah. oh my God. There's, there's famous managers that have said, I didn't see it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we know the ones yeah. <laughs> and I completely understand why managers do that because they've got to protect their players mm. they've got to protect themselves that's part of the game football's a very um, cutthroat environment mm. um, and, and, and you've got to look after yourself and I completely understand why managers do that but I think putting the referee out there uh, the referee can never go out and say actually but the player's behaviour was just terrible mm. or actually what about when the player did this five minutes before you're not showing that mm. that I just don't think it would be very fair. I think it would be extremely one-sided mm. and for actual no real benefit other than scapegoating people. Mm. Before we move on to a little bit, a, a different part of the topic, Pierluigi Colina. Yes. Discuss. Yeah, so Pierluigi Colina, so he's head of refereeing at UEFA. Uh, so he kind of runs refereeing in Europe, so top. Previously, um, the Don Previously, yeah. I mean, any referee who makes it on the cover of FIFA, I mean... <laughs> You know, I remember well. that. Was it B4 Pro Evo? Might have been Pro Evo, yeah. I still remember that. I was like, wow, that is levels. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that will never happen again. But <laughs> I think it says more about him. Um, he's someone who was the best at managing people. Mm. So it, his eyes were very famous. He could kill with a stare. Oh, my God. those. If I saw that on a pitch, I would literally... like. Yeah. Put, players don't call referees sir in football, but I will be calling him sir every yeah. day of the week. <laughs> so, funnily enough, he was actually a head teacher as his job before he became... Not surprising at all. <laughs> but, um, but he was someone who could just adapt his personality to mm. every person. So we always say on a, on a football pitch there'll be 22 different personalities. Mm. Extroverts, introverts, yeah. all that sort of stuff. You, you, you cannot manage everyone the same and he was just the, the perfect... He was in an era where it was just accepted... Big characters. big characters. Oh my Lord, yeah. bigger characters now. Well, he was in the 90s when you had what, like Maldini, Nesta, everyone. Nedved, everyone. And Ronald, R9... Everyone, everyone, these, massive the, characters, and, and that was probably the 
starting off of superstars. Mm. Those Galacticos, yeah, Dan, exactly Raul, that. Morientes, yeah, Figo. But he was someone who could have them all. He had the palm of his hand. <laughs> Ridiculous. So to have that skill, um, yeah, a top, top referee and a top, top man. Is it, is it true that he never called a player by their name and he always called them by their number? Uh, so maybe I don't know that would be interesting that's a story I did hear that he, yeah. in his whole because you always see sometimes referees and you can hear their like lip you know um, you can read their lip movements yeah. and they can they're calling some, sometimes players by their first names or nicknames or whatever but I did hear the story that in like 20 odd years of refereeing even once. the bigger being the biggest names he never yeah. called he always said black number nine yeah. white number number eight so yeah I um, mean that wouldn't surprise me at all no and you know what if that works for you that works I think we'll see now that there are times and places there will be a time when at all levels you will get to know players and it might be Freddie come here Freddie and actually next time it might be Red 7 come here because mm. that's in a step up in what I've said because mm. actually rather than me being a bit soft and a bit more personal I'm now saying right I need to step up with you because you didn't react to the first time around mm. so actually there's a real place for both in terms of getting to know people's names because the same way as if someone was to call me Red 7 I'm just Red 7 but if mm. someone wants to say Fry I'd go oh alright yeah mm. but some people that doesn't work and some people then they need to have that step up of um, a bit less personal for it to have an impact mm. talking about social media again mm. um, you know this abuse is, 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 is massive in our game and it, I think it's pr- more a reflection of society more than anything yeah. else but it is a big reason why most professional referees still in the game stay off social media. Mm-hmm. There's a few that are, are on it who are former referees. You know, Keith Hackett's quite a yeah. prominent guy on, on mm-hmm. social media, probably sometimes helping referees, probably sometimes not in, <laughs> in what the tweets I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, Bobby Madley's quite, quite, yeah. quite a public on, on, on Twitter and he actually is very receptive actually to a lot of people, fans when they say you made this decision in 2013 on March the yeah. 7th that he somehow has, he somehow remembers the decision and responds to them. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a reason why, you know, most referees probably have private accounts and, or just don't have social media at all. What work are you doing at the FA to sort of combat this abuse? Yeah, so as I said earlier, kind of 90% of our new referees are young. And the young generation will all have social media, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, whatever else there is out there. Mm. They'll be on it all. So actually, refereeing can't afford to be in, in an age of, no, no social media. You can't mm. have it. It's, it's, that's, that just doesn't mm. work. So actually, we've got to use it and we've got to work it. So we always say that if you wouldn't say something in a press conference, if you wouldn't say it to your parents, your family, if you wouldn't say it to the clubs you're going to, mm. then don't put it out there because mm. you put yourself at risk. Um, in terms of what comes back, I think, as you said, across the game, we've seen instances of players receiving all sorts, managers receiving all sorts, referees receiving all sorts. Um, you only have to look at what happened, allegedly, with, with the Leighton Orient manager yeah, last week last and week. Uh, Mark Cooper. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I always say that you invite society, which football does. Football invites every corner of society, and it's available to every corner. I think that's one of the beauties, is that not every sport is really open to every mm. corner of society. Uh, football is but with that you get every corner of society and society has good but it also has um, some things that the general population may not agree with Mm. the last kind of proper football related topic on this I Mm -hmm. want to discuss is a bit of a controversial one which is VAR Uh, it's the big question on everyone's lips right Mm -hmm. now now personally I, I was a big fan of it when it was first introduced way I think it was at the World Cup when we saw it yeah introduced. I think when we saw it yeah. mass scale. and yeah. there was examples when I think there was a goal that South Korea scored against Germany which was which was rightly given and mm-hmm. stuff like that but uh, we've there's been a lot of teething problems yeah. with it 
And I think one thing that fans have been frustrated by is that they see it on the screen in the stadium, a decision is given and there's no sort of, they can't see the rationale behind it. Personally, obviously I know there's only so much you can say on this, but how do you think it's going and do you share some of their concerns? Yeah, I think football, um, I think the first thing to say that it's not perfect. Mm. I think people that would try and say it's perfect are maybe defending something. Mm. But actually, sometimes the best thing you can do is pick your hands and go, look, this isn't perfect, mm. but we're trying to make it work. And I say we, so it's managed by the Premier League, but I, th- I say football uh, uh, as we. Um, personal thoughts on it, I think when it first came in, I was very sceptical. Okay. Um, but as with anything, you... I think that's human nature. Often you, people aren't necessarily receptive to change. Mm. And I think that's across all walks of life. But you start to see the benefits of it. Um, and I'd always use the example of if you were to have a decision on the last game of the season that would have been wrong mm. and was going to relegate a team or would have knocked the team out of the Champions League or decided the title, mm. VAR can correct that. Mm. People go, this has worked. The clubs especially, so the clubs are the ones who drive it. Mm. When people say the FA do this, the Premier League do this, the clubs, the 20 Premier League clubs are the ones who decide on it, the ones who vote on it and the ones who finance it. So that's where it really comes from in terms of the Premier League stakeholders. Um, and for them, they obviously see value, but in terms of the ins and outs working, it can still get better. It'll still evolve. Um, you talk about the World Cup and that was a real kind of... It was a watershed moment, moment, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 a real watershed moment in that it worked really well. Um, it was very clearly communicated. It was very succinct. Um, everyone understood what was going on um, and, and, and that was a real positive but it took FIFA a long long time and they had the best match officials in the world from every corner of the country mm. They every corner of the world they picked the best and when you have the best you are going to get better results and that, our challenge in England I'm sure is to get our standards up there and say mm. that actually so that whether you're in the stadium whether you're at home whether you're out on the street you understand what's mm. happening when a VAR check goes on. Do you think it's more, the issues have been more actually the implementation by human decision-making rather than the, the technology itself? I feel like people are sort of having a go at it. It's, it's the human error, it's not the technology. Do you, do you share that or do you think it's a bit of both? Yes, I think a lot of the um, disgruntlement I've, I've seen and I've heard is around offside decisions. Mm. And actually, offside decision isn't a human judgment. It, it is done by a, um, almost like a science to it. Mm. So actually, in football, as a, and I say football as fans, as spectators, we need to decide, are we happy with granular decisions? Because if we are, you've got to accept that you might be offside by a half an inch on your boot, mm. or your chest may play someone onside. We've got to accept that. Um, if we're not, then I think people need to think that when decisions were being wrong previously, why are we having a go at people? Mm. Why are we outing people when actually we've now got the opposite and we've got all decisions right, bar a fair few which uh, have been recognised by the Premier League. We've now got every decision right and we're still not happy. Mm. It's a difficult one, isn't it? You need to find a balance of, do you want the right decision or do you not? Mm. And I don't think football fans necessarily know that. Mm. Looking forward now, what do you hope to achieve in your role at the FA and what initiatives could you share with us that are coming up? Yeah, so... um, Working at the FA, people often think that uh, the FA is backwards, behind the times. Um, I'm sure there are many stereotypes. You type the FA into Twitter, it's not always the nicest of reading. Mm. Um, but what I will say is there are hundreds of, of people that work there that go above and beyond, give up more hours than they're paid to do to help football. Um, in terms of specifically what um, 
we're, we're looking to do. So in, in terms of refereeing, we're in a fortunate position with numbers, that numbers are good. Can numbers, referees can always be better. Uh, but we're really looking to increase the number of females in refereeing, mm-hmm. the number of people in um, from diverse backgrounds. So I take myself as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I guess, a rarity in refereeing. I was going to say, yeah. Uri right. Rennie's the only one I can think of. Yeah, Uri Rennie's who, who, who made it to the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's... Less, just just under ten percent. Around nine percent of referees are from a BAME background, which actually isn't terrible in, in comparison it's not to horrifically others. misrepresentative of society either. It could be always be better, but it's it's not. That's actually surprising. I, didn't, I, didn't, I thought it was going to be a lot lower than that. Yeah, it's it's higher than people think. Um, but that's not to say that we need to widen our talent pool, and, mm. and, 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 and that's a big part of that. Um, in terms of what's coming up, I think uh, for fans of non-league football, there will be some changes to the non-league structure which will see some changes to the refereeing structure um, but our biggest challenge as always is how do we provide the next generation of football league Premier League international referees so I'm very confident I would re- I'd really hope that either Michael Oliver and his team or Anthony Taylor and his team or both will be at Euro 2020 mm. um, which, which, which will be fantastic um, English representation at international tournaments is always good um, beyond that it's uh, who's going to be there in 2022 World Cup, 2024, 2026, 2028, 2030. Those are real challenges for us as the FA, is how do we provide those people for those those tournaments? Okay. Uh, and when the, I think it was the last World Cup happened, or the Euros, we didn't actually have any English referees go mm-hmm. to it. Um, what was your reaction to that, and, and, and how, did that, how did that impact on you? Yeah, so the 2018 World Cup Russia, uh, no... Um, English representation um, and there's, there's some reasoning behind it but before that we've been very fortunate to have World Cup final referees uh, Mark Klattenberg Champions League Howard Webb yeah yep. Howard Webb um, we, we, we've had a long list of high profile international appointments some of the best in the world have come from England um, but 2018 um, obviously people always go oh well, good English referee must be terrible mm. but in short you have to nominate one referee three years in advance from your country, the best in your country, to be on that World Cup long list. Klattenberg was our nominated referee. And then he left. And then he moved to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah. And as part of him leaving, he understood that he forfeits his place as a World Cup referee. Um, so it wasn't a case of, because we have many referees, we have top Premier League referees who could, I say easily, because I can't say it because I'm here, but in my opinion, could easily referee at a World Cup, no problem, would be some of the best referees at a World Cup. Uh, but didn't have the opportunity because they were not nominated on that three list because Mark Klattenberg was and um, he, took the, he took a decision to actually I'm going to uh, change my career slightly and, and move abroad and hey you, you can't knock someone's personal personal wants personal needs personal ambitions uh, so that was why not because English refereeing had come to an end as some people thought <laughs> big topic um, for us that's unfortunately dominated the front page and the back page over the course of 2019 is, is racism in football. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen Raheem Sterling be racially abused by a group of Chelsea fans. We've seen Arsenal striker Emerick Aubameyang have a banana thrown at him in the North London derby. Um, and more recently, the England team be subjected to horrific monkey chants, other forms of racist abuse in the Euro 2020 qualifiers against Bulgaria and earlier this year in Montenegro. Now, we must point out that that isn't a new phenomenon. They 
famously got racially abused when they were in Spain a few years ago, I remember now, when the likes of Sean White Phillips and Ashley Cole were playing. Um, now, firstly, your man of mixed heritage um, was with, his, with a Zimbabwean mother and a white British father who also happens to be half Italian, is that correct? Yeah. Um, so this affects you much more deeply than me. Mm-hmm. I can obviously understand it, I can obviously empathise, but I can never truly understand what it's like to be in your shoes or, or any person of, of a BAME background. First of all, how did you react to those things from, from a personal level with the, with the, with the Euro 2020 qualifiers? Uh, and particularly those, those, those isolated sort of sec- entire sections of the crowd which were monkey chanting and were giving horrific abuse. And it wasn't just these one or two isolated individuals. Yeah. Some that managers often deflect with and fans who are on social media will say, oh, it was just one or two. Well, actually, it was three quarters of the bloody stadium. Yeah, so it brings um, two main emotions, I guess. Mm. Um, first one is one of uh, half anger, half disappointment, in that you do think, um, how is this happening? We're in 2019. Mm. Surely people are in the way of thinking that, I think we in England think, that they're all races, all, all genders, all creeds, everything, all religions are all accepted. Um, but that's obviously not the way in mm. all parts of the world. But but also um, a real sense of pity. I, mm. I, I actually really pity people because why that, is that? Because I, th- I just think to be of that mindset of you are black, you are Asian, you are white, you are of whatever heritage, and you are less than me. I, I genuinely believe that your mind is so small mm. in that you've not been exposed <clears throat> to all of these different things. So actually, I really pity you and think it's. A lot of it is a lack of education. Mm. I think that it's just you've never had an opportunity to understand what other cultures. So actually, you're, you're just going off what you might have been told. Mm. You're just going off what you might have seen on a media article or on YouTube or on Twitter and think, oh, all black people are like that. Mm. All Asian people are like that. All white people are like that. How did you react when the manager said what he said? Or yeah. when, was it, I can't remember who it was. Was it Raheem Sterling or was it Carl Walker who sort of, no, it was Jordan Henderson, sorry. It was Jordan Henderson as, a, as an ally. Yeah, yeah. He was saying to the manager, oh, are you fucking hearing this? And he was like... Um, and it was the whole stadium. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the manager, I think he was um, sensible to resign a week later. Um, I thought you were going to say deluded. I was going to go, yes, he yeah. was deluded. <laughs> yeah, sensible um, to resign. I think when you're in a country like that, um, I would... And I, and I can't put words in his mouth, the manager. I would challenge him to say, you didn't hear anything which I guess he was claiming, or mm. I'm not hearing anything of what you're saying. So I'd, I'd challenge that. Um, I think he was probably in a situation of, do I turn against my own people? Mm. Or do I do what's right? And he's put in a moral dilemma, mm. and um, he chose to stick with his own people. Mm. I feel like that's, that, that trope of denying it's happened, or I, th- I think there was an England under-21s game a few years ago, where they were racially abused by opposition players or some one of the opposition mm. players was was it against Russia? I can't really remember now. Mm. But the but the, the management team on the opposing team, I'll have to fact check that, um, they were saying, oh the England players provoked it, they were to blame. And this sort of gaslighting, blaming people for being racially abused. I mean that yeah. I feel like that's almost becoming not normalised for some of these in some of these instances, but it's almost becoming a common excuse. Yeah, I think... Do you feel like that, as, that way as well? Or um, is it just me? I think that you, you can't blame someone for being racially abused because <laughs> I think, as we talked about earlier, albeit in a different context, that the behaviour starts with you as an individual. 
So you as an individual have to take responsibility. So someone could do something to you, say something to you, your response, you've got to take responsibility for. Um, but I would never ever say there is anything you should say, actually, no, it's fine for you to be racially abused. There's never an occasion where, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's uh, to do with sexual orientation, mm. There's no excuse to just go and use that as an out. Oh, actually, mm. but they did this, so I thought I'd say that back to them. That, that just doesn't slide. Mm. Especially now when we live in a, a culture, a society where it is fine to be of any race, any mm. religion, whatever. It's, that's, it's, it's normal. Mm. Um, I, don't, I, I don't buy any of those excuses. Mm. Uh, I think it's, it's often an easy out to say, oh, I did it because... So you won't just take responsibility for your own actions. Mm. The the other the other example I wanted to point to uh, recently before we go into the how it sort of bubbled under the surface in recent years was the two instances in Italy involving yeah. Mario Balotelli and um, who plays for Nice, I think it is right now, or is it somewhere uh, else? Yeah, I thought I think he was playing for Nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Romelu Lukaku who's playing mm. for Inter Milan. Now, Italy, I'm pretty accurate in saying, has had its fair share of racism problems mm-hmm. in recent years. Balotelli is, despite what people might say about his character and attitude problems, has been racially abused probably his entire career yeah. um, in Italy. And Romelu Lukaku um, was, I think, subjected to, to racist chants from Juventus fans, or was it... I can't remember what game it was. I'll, I'll fact, that, fact check that as well. But his own fans, I think, came out and said those monkey chants were like supporting you or something ridiculous or some ultras group said that I mean how do I don't even have words to put to describe how ridiculous that is to hear but they somehow was able to spin it into an excuse like how do you react to that this new form of defending racism by saying it's supportive (laughs) yeah I mean um I don't think there is way any way to explain it to understand it I, I I just don't think you can uh, what what we also people like Balotelli, um, Lukaku, Moise Keane, who's now mm. Everton, uh, Sterling, a number of players that have been through. You look back to I guess the olden days, Sil Regis, Laurie Cunningham, the king, the king yeah. Sil Regis. I mean, yeah, I say that because my dad's a, a West Brom fan, so he mm. he really is the king to mm. um, But to those people, to be able to take it, to be able to not overly react and lose your head they had to because they if they if they reacted to it they would be seen as this angry black man stereotype yeah. and the sort of things that i guess barack obama had to go through yeah, when he was going for presidency mm-hmm. yes it's very similar um but for those people to take it you have got one hell of a strong character and that's that's one thing i, I will say is that until it happens to you you will never know how you react because mm. people will say oh you should do this you should do that until it happens to you you will never ever know that's a really good point um because at that time, I think people have said England should have walked off in Bulgaria. Players should have gone. But actually, as a team, they decided that people had trust in Sterling, Kane, Henderson as mm. three senior players to make the decision on behalf of the team. Mm. You saw Tyrone Mings in the conversation on his England debut. Mm. What a brave thing to do. Your mm. first game for your country, maybe a bit unexpected mm. early on in your career, not playing for a top eight club, mm. playing away in Bulgaria, to be in the conversation to say... This is what we should this do. This is what we should yeah. be doing. And actually, the, as a team, the, the, they carried on. And, and for them, they, they were happy to go on and win the game and actually say, right, that, 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 this is our sign, and then let the authorities deal with it, uh, which then becomes a separate kind of conversation. But the, the character building, the strength of those people, shouldn't be admired because people go, oh, yeah, but it's part and parcel because you're a Premier League footballer, you earn 150 grand. It's irrelevant whether you're on 
but working in a local shop on the minimum wage, whether you're one of the highest paid people of your age in the country, mm. it's irrelevant who you are. Mm. That strength of character to take that is something I admire. Mm. I think we, we touched on it a bit earlier in that I think a lot of people maybe naively thought that racism had sort of gone away mm. in this country. And really, I think it was just bubbling under the surface and waiting to emerge again. What, what's your take on it? I think social media's um, brought it to the fore. And that previously there had been many thoughts, um, positive and negative, that people would just kick themselves or would have in a face-to-face conversation. But now there's a platform that, actually, I'm having a bad day. I'm really annoyed at that person, so I'm just going to put it out there. And at them straight yeah, away. At them yeah, straight away. Or, instant access. Or you put something on and I disagree with you, so actually I'm just going to call you something racist back. Mm. Or you play for the opposing team, I support the Reds, you play for the Blues. Actually, an easy thing for me to do is to racially abuse you and try and roll you up. Mm. So I think that's played a part in it. Um, Racism, I don't think, will ever completely go from society um, because people are born into... uh, Or people are born into... Yeah, yeah, learned prejudice, yeah. Yeah, you're brought into a uh, situation, into a society, whether it be in your home, whether it be in your school, whether it be in friends that you Mm -hmm. make, of actually, I have this thought about this type of person. It doesn't always have to be of race. and that will never go. I think that will just continue. And albeit, I think it's getting smaller and smaller. Um, I think it's a long time before we will begin a society where it's completely, mm. completely gone. There's been several articles written recently. I'm not sure if you've seen them, which which place the sort of Luis Suarez and, and Patrice Evra racism case mm. at the forefront of this sort of ascent, maybe, of racism from the underground or people not really paying attention to it as much to very much the forefront. Um, and the way Liverpool fans, or some Liverpool fans, I should say, yeah. um, and some players, oh well, I think most of the players wore that T-shirt, um, defended Suarez even after his ban. Um, so for those listeners who don't know, there was an incident between Man United defender Patrice Evra at the time and Liverpool striker, um, Liverpool striker Luis Suarez. Patrice Evra alleged that he, that uh, Suarez said a racial epithet or racial slur, went to, went to the FA... Um, Suarez was found guilty was given a 10 game ban is that, is that so, correct yeah, so um, but then after the ban I believe that Liverpool players wore a shirt in support in of Luis Suarez yeah. in the warm up to a game I can't remember what the game was and I think Kenny Dalglish came out quite openly and supported Luis Suarez as well mm-hmm. looking back do you see this as a seminal moment in how racism almost became a partisan issue in football rather than one that was perhaps based on an objective truth? Um, it's a difficult one. Yeah, it's very difficult. I think mm. that when people make mistakes, and mm. I don't know, but some of those Liverpool players may regret... Carragher Cope openly came out, didn't he, and yeah. said how he regretted it and apologised to Patrice Ever yeah, on mean, Monday Night Football. You can, and, and you can all make mistakes. We're all human. You, you may... Especially when it's to do with someone who you're in allegiance with. You may mm. go, I'm sticking with the person I know, mm. I trust. Mm. That, but, and, and, and that may be a mistake that you, you may find out later or you may realise in your own mind later. Um, and I think it, accepting that is part of the, um, part of the getting over it. Um, it's difficult to say that, was that a watershed moment? I'd say no, but I think now uh, society's got into a lot, especially football, has got into a better place of actually calling out people that say mm. things wrong. So as an example, not only two weeks ago, uh, Tranmere Rovers v Wickham, it was openly, a spectator was arrested on the fact that the Wickham goalkeeper reported the fact that a spectator had said a homophobic comment towards the referee. Mm. 
And before, it wasn't, it was not towards me, I'll leave it. Mm. That would have been the mindset. But actually now I know that's wrong. Mm. So actually that now, calling people out is, is, is now done. I think it's a real positive that mm. that self-policing of behaviour. Nowadays, football chants are, I say more PC, but you don't see sexist chants. You don't see as much. Chants. There's still examples, but yeah, yeah not as much. You'll still get small pockets, but the people are far more likely now to call it out and go, whoa. No, no, that, 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 that just doesn't slide. It's not 1970 anymore. Mm. And that is a, a positive step change, and, and that's the self-policing of it, in that people will go, actually, if one of my own supporters, someone who's the same as me, thinks that's not right, am I in the wrong? Mm. If it's someone of another team, it's almost, means, it's, it's almost meaningless. Mm. Um, yeah, difficult. Mm. We'll talk about your own um, experiences of, of, of racism in football um, when we come on to your, your journey topic, but... What are the FA doing specifically in your own role in the UK to combat this racism in football? Yeah, so um, a lot in short. There's, there are so many different things that happen from uh, in, in, engaging with all sorts of communities. So you can imagine that every different community in the country um, will be involved in football. Uh, today, I, for one, of thousands of players, referees... We're wearing the Rainbow Laces, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously a big campaign on LGBTQ and just how that's just accepted, no matter what your sexual orientation is. Mm. Football is for you. Um, still got a way to go in terms of um, people being open. And But I always believe that's only if you're comfortable in being open. If you don't want to be um, open about your sexuality... Don't why, have to. Yeah, yeah. Why, why should you? Actually, it's all up to you, isn't it? It's only up to you. Actually, you might go, I don't want to be open. I'm quite happy keeping it private and keeping it away from football so that's fine um, but just, just I think the support of that in terms of making it accessible and, and everyone knowing that it's accessible mm. um, there's lots done in terms of the reporting side so as you can imagine as a governing body we are there to uh, sanction and to take in reports so actually it's now easier than ever to report um, in, incidents of um, discrimination and um, and that's been taken on board. I think you look at the FA as staff members as well, it's now more representative than ever um, in terms of females, in terms of people from different backgrounds. That can only be a good thing for the game, that actually if there are people on the inside, because mm. people always think of the FA inside some ivory towers, actually if you think if there are people on the inside who understand it, who go through it themselves, far more likely to want to make a difference mm. than people who you may think have no relation to it. And just quickly, you touched on it there about the, the Rainbow Laces campaign. Do you think we will see an openly gay footballer in the EFL or Premier League in the next five to ten years? Uh, maybe. M- maybe not. I think mm. it's um, not so much the support of the football community. Mm. I think players, managers, coaches, match officials... Come a long way, haven't we, I yeah. think, in the dressing room culture. People, mm. will, be f- people will accept it. It's, it's part and parcel. People will be fine with it. Uh, I think the real hesitation uh, may be from... Mm. The external. I think we've just talked about some of the uh, social media challenges. I think that would bring another challenge to a person. Do you think it, it would sort of be a way of rooting out those people who might have got these... What's the way to put this? There might be people who have got closeted homophobic beliefs and they don't show them when they're in the stadium. Do you think that if a player came out, it would almost be like we could root out these scumbags from the game get them banned because we'd find out because they would feel so I don't know compelled to say something or they would put something on social media do you think it would almost not be a turning a negative into a positive but 
it, it could be a way to actually make the sport better for the fans as well. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Mm. Um, but I would, I would never want that person, whoever it were to be, to be the first one that has to take lots of mm, I can, no, abuse. I because yeah. actually, no, you're, you're, cause you're not sacrificing yourself. That's just who you mm. are. I wouldn't want them to have to sacrifice themselves and actually I'm going to take all this abuse for everyone else. Mm. It shouldn't be like that. Mm. I think we've been through that with race where, as we talked about earlier, people... Cyril. Cyril, Laurie, yeah, yeah. Laurie, Brendan Batson. Brendan Batson, These people yeah. had to just take it. But actually they were... I think they, they are openly called trailblazers mm. to allow now what we see in football players of mm. every race being, being allowed into the game. I've never been one to change about your professional career um, with the FA right? and we've also talked about how racism plays into that but I wanted to talk about your own journey now which we've touched on a bit in different places so let's start with your football journey firstly you know how did you get into football who took you to your first live match or, or the part for a kickabout you know I spoke to Matt Harold on a recent pod and he talked about Wanstead Flats and we obviously know about yeah. Wanstead Flats as a part of our childhood mm-hmm. but um, maybe Wanstead Park as well um, but but how did you fall in love with the game? And tell me the story about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it probably started before I can remember, actually. So, um, a, f- a very good family friend of mine, um, of, my, of, of my family's, uh, used to play for Coventry United, Coventry City, Sheffield United, was involved in international called Peter and Love. Mm. I think he was the first African footballer in the Premier League. Um, so someone who's got a bit of history behind them. So he actually lived, when he first moved to England, he lived with my family for uh, three months wow. before I was born. What claim to fame? Um, because we lived 10 minutes from Coventry City training ground where mm. he was living. So actually, before I was even remembering anything, I was taken down to Coventry City, uh, training ground games, behind closed doors games, mm. um, and at Highfield Road, uh, as it was then. Um, but then I guess my real foot, uh, burst for love started when my dad took me to watch Leighton Orient. Mm. Uh, Leighton Orient would be Plymouth Argyle, nil-nil draw on a Tuesday night, and that was it <laughs> ever since then. Most, football fa- most, <laughs> most popular football fans always have the first game as a shit game. Yeah, dreadful. <laughs> Absolutely dreadful. Um, and somehow I, I kind of fell in love with Leighton Orient. I fell in love with, with the game. I think I'd always played it and just, as, as you do as a kid, but I'd never really loved it. But that was the moment. I was probably about seven or eight then. Mm. Um, and... It was my dad who took me to my first game where I was playing on Once Their Flats, funnily enough. Mm. Um, and played in goal for a few years, um, <laughs> probably just because the big lads, you, know, you can go in goal. Mm. Um, and then someone realised I can actually kick the ball as well, so I ended up playing centre-half. <laughs> um, and I guess I was kind of fortunate from there um, to, A, make some brilliant friends, some of my best mates and mates from football, mm. um, but to also kind of... Have, forged a career from mm. it as well has, has been fantastic uh, and making it as a professional footballer a lot of people don't realise is something that only this would, I think I'm getting this statistic right it's like 0.001% or something like that of players who actually try to do or ever achieve it you had a taste of it when you were at Stevenage mm-hmm. talk to me about how, how you were spotted by them and then your journey at the club from sort of start to finish yeah I mean it's, it's funny you say that stat I look at growing up some of the players I played with some of the players I played against in in the local area, East London, like mm. West Essex. Mm. And I think there are so many players who are far better than me. Mm. Players that should have played far higher than me or I never should have played at that level. Mm. Um, but I, I guess I was fortunate. Work great, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean... Application. I'll always say to people, and I never want to talk about myself because I was never the technically best player. Mm. But what I'd do is I'd be out in the park until eight o'clock playing football every mm. night. I'd finish school, do, do a bit of work and I'd go... And I'd play football for hours and hours and hours. And I'd just, almost without knowing it, I'd just be training myself to get better and better. Um, so it started really, um, someone who I guess I owe a lot of my 
career to really um, in one of my best mates Ben Foster his his dad who's unfortunately no longer with us but um, he was someone Craig he was someone who got me into Sunday um, into Sunday youth football at Redbridge United mm. um, played there for four years is that is that the ground which is next to Barkingside Station yes yeah, that's yeah. Like kind of where the first yeah. team is and uh, the youth teams we, we played just a little bit further away um, yeah so played there and I, I, Craig kind of pushed me to play district football mm. from district football kind of took me to county football from county football, it took me into um, Colchester United, Norwich City, as in during year, year eleven, which was my first real taste of. I mean, like this football is actually quite good, really. <laughs> um, which I guess is quite an anomaly in that normally people are in the system from quite young and they're in an academy from nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Mm. But yeah, I came into the academy system really at fifteen, just before I turned so 15. late. But yeah, but in yeah, football terms, really, yeah. really late. Um, was then um, offered a deal at Colchester like a scholarship uh, turned it down because uh, my mum being my mum said no you're going to go and do your education and that was like mumsy knew mumsy knew what was up yeah <laughs> a bit gutted really but we made a half and half house that I'd go to like a sports uh, sick form so I went and did a year at sports sick form and then got offered um, my two year contract at Stevenage which um, again I was like mum people don't get offered this once never mind getting offered it mm. twice um she yeah. caved on that one. She caved yeah, on that yeah. one um, on a provisor that I carried on with a couple of my A-levels. So <laughs> that was a bit of bargaining. But yeah, that then took me into, I guess, the world of professional football um, and it became my job. And in the space of two months, I'd gone from being just a normal sixth form student playing football on a Wednesday and, a, and on a Saturday to now moving away from home, uh, living with people I never met, every day being at football, basically six days a week and on your seventh day you probably don't have time to go home so mm. my life just changed drastically but mm. um, never looked back I had some cracking experiences played with some incredible players incredible people some good grounds some fantastic coaches mm. um, yeah it was really really lucky talk to me about uh, first of all just the highs and the low points of that of that career that you had and also the moment when you were sort of released and how that made you feel and the impact it had on you. We Matt Harold spoke about the the impact that being released had on him when he was at West Ham United, but mm. that was almost a relief for him because he wasn't enjoying it. But for many footballers, they're also probably told that they're the absolute bee's knees from the age of eight till the age of whenever by parents, coaches, people in their network. And then they get to say 15, 16, 17, 18 at a professional club and they get released and it's like the world ends. Yeah. Is that something that you found maybe not affected you but certainly affected others uh, but yeah talk to me about that, that I know it's a lot to unpack there but just yeah. sort of take me through that journey yeah so I saw it in a lot of my teammates that as you say contracts not being renewed and it was the world's coming to an end mm. what do I do now that's it I'm, I'm, I'm done I, I don't mm. know where no else backup to no mm. backup whatsoever mm. and maybe I guess from my parents I was fortunate that my, my parents were never pushy in terms of football they were pushy in terms of education exactly the right, the right, the right area basically. yeah the right yeah, area yeah, yeah. and football is always like yeah if, if, if you it happens do it, it happens, yeah, it happens. Yeah. Um, so actually when I got released uh, not quite the same as Matt Howell but similar as a footballer you know you have a feeling and I knew in probably in February or March Graham Wesley the manager of Stevens at the time mm. left to go to Preston took his staff with him and that was where I thought, oh, this this could change me now because at that time I was training with the first team. I was, I think I was doing really well. I was kind of maybe thought of in high regard. Mm. Um, but then it kind of changed. All of a sudden, a new manager came in, and I just wasn't fancy. And, and mm. I knew it. I went out on loan straight away. Um, and you get a feeling. So actually, when I was told, it was almost like a. I was yeah. waiting for an it inkling. To come. You had an inkling about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was it was no surprise whatsoever. So I, I wasn't distraught. I wasn't 
down actually I think for some of the boys some of the boys were like right can I go now I just want to leave mm. for me I was like right I need to stay I stayed I trained I'd like to think that probably one of the things that helped me was my attitude I just said look actually I'm going to carry on training that professionalism yeah. stayed with you yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll stay to the end of my deal albeit I find I'm happy to go out alone but I'm coming in training every day um, and I guess maybe it paid off because I was fortunate then to get one of my high moments in maybe a bit of a surreal that I got a, a phone call from a director of football of, of a club in Spain mm. um, who said oh, I've, I saw you playing a reserve game against Watford da, 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 da. I thought oh, this is wow that's in depth research I, crikey I was like this is a wind up show <laughs> like, I'm like uh, it's actually phone jack on the end of the yeah. phone yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for one of my mates to start laughing but anyway and this is me being 18 mm. at the time I think anyway email comes through about a day later as we've spoken about I'm like oh my god this is actually real mm. um, and before you know it from having no club probably looking to go to America on a university scholarship mm. to I've now now moving to Spain in five weeks to go and have a year's contract there Crikey. Um, that was such a high moment and what an experience I mean living in a different culture um, having to really grow up because I'd lived away from home and learnt the basics but then having to learn a new language mm. um, Are you still, do you still have it now? Uh, a little bit a little bit un, okay. un, un poquito <laughs> as I tell everyone um, I know the important things for holidays um, but I, I, don't, I don't think I can hold much of a conversation you know. um, but yeah that, that was a fantastic high um, the, the, the culture the lifestyle the footwork there was so different but uh, a really really good experiences um, but yeah in terms of managing those lows it's something that I guess is pertinent to the, indiv- pertinent to the individual and that you need mm. to have people around you you need to have a support network who can make you see the bigger picture who can help you to get over some of the, some of the lows and for some people they can't and actually they leave the game and that's maybe where their path takes them mm. uh, I was fortunate to find another avenue in the game which mm. um, obviously where I am now we touched on it earlier in the pod, but I really wanted to dive in into the article that you did in the Metro um, mm. with a great journalist called Natalie Morris, and um, she also did an interview with with my friend Robert Parks as well uh, on this side, this series that she's got called Mixed Up, mm-hmm. which is an in depth look at people of mixed heritage, their stories, their experiences, and really trying to challenge some of the misconceptions that people might have, some of the tropes people might have, yeah. um, and really explore those sort of biases that people might have as well. So first of all, how did you balance the sort of white British part of your identity on your dad's side and the black Zimbabwean part from your mum's side growing up? We obviously went to school together. We were lucky that we're, we're in, we were in a bit of a bubble in the sort of Wanstead, yeah. East, London, East London Village community, whereby we did, ex- we did encounter a lot of people from different backgrounds, but it was very much in a sort of liberal, yeah. um, liberal environment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, as you alluded to there, Freddie, in terms of growing up, where we've grown up is... Good in that standing out because of your race was never really a thing. Nah, never um, was it. So I look at the majority of my best mates are white, mm. but I've got best mates that are black. Obviously, half, mm. a huge half of my family are black and all have Zimbabwean heritage. Um, and I've got really good friends who are of Asian background. Mm-hmm. So I'm really lucky in that sense that race has never been a thing. Um, I guess I kind of had to manage it more so when... I moved abroad. Mm. That, that was probably the first time when I was really conscious of my race. Um, and why was that? Uh, Spain was very different. So, the, I, was, so I was living in Jerez in the mm-hmm. south, in Andalusia. 
Uh, not too much tourism, um, more so in Seville. Mm-hmm. There is, and you go obviously around to Marbella, Barcelona, Sitges, yeah. and all those places. Yeah. So there's yeah. lots of tourism there, but where I was, there wasn't much tourism, um, and there wasn't too much diversity. So mm. A, being English, and B, not being white, European. <laughs> Mediterranean, yeah. white, European, yeah. Um, maybe brought, brought it home a little bit, and, and, and there was a few instances um, where it was highlighted to me and, and kind of in the negative um, and that was the first time obviously being very young at the time still mm. being 18 probably and could, could you if you if you can could you yeah. tell me like one of those stories yeah so I remember um, well, <laughs> I laugh now because it's if you laugh about it you can own it that's yeah, all I always say seven or eight years ago now um, so we were playing away at a, in a small village which I will never remember the name mm. um, and winning 2-1 um, one of our teammates got sent off. Rightly or wrongly? Uh, I think in Spain it's very different in that very soft. So I'd oh, say wrongly, okay. but there they'd accept it. Yellow cards are given mm. out. Like, very, very different to here. Um, and then I then got substituted because I think I'd scored the equaliser, but before that I'd been getting booed. Right. So when I celebrated, me being a cocky young player, yeah. I'd run off. Sort of give it to the fans. In fact, the fans. See just what they were booing because of that. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until the start of the second half, I was just getting kicked like off the ball, kicked. What is going on? Uh, my head starts to go here. The manager took me off. And as I'm off, he said, you need to go inside mm. for my own, not knowing it's for my own safety. But as I walked down the tunnel, a fan comes up to the gate and spits in my face. Fucking hell. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget this. And so I'm inside the team. Like from point blank or like so, where, sort of what the distance is? Probably half a metre. So I'm inside what's like an open, like yeah. a gated tunnel. Yeah. And he's on the other side of it. And through there, just right in my face. And wipe it off and you just kind of fight or flight. And before mm. I know it, fair, just, play, fair play to the Spanish lads. And I, I'll never condone this, but I can understand... Oh, your teammates that, just went yeah, in, just started taking I can, names. I, I, can understand, I can understand the reaction that when it happens that... And before you know it, there's 50, 100 people yeah. just on top of it. Um, and I look back and I go, wow, how, how has that happened? Were you proud of your teammates as well for doing it? And not that we condone violence in yeah. any way, but were you proud of them I, for the way they reacted? Because, you know, Spain is a country that has a lot of racial divisions and, and has a lot of... Um, we've obviously alluded to it previously with experiences for fans and, and black players in England, but they could have easily yeah, reacted just, negatively or said why did you, you provoked him blah 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 but yeah, they came in yeah, and went full in, in support yeah, of me yeah, yeah. And, and, and something I'll be, I'll be grateful one because I was probably a bit shaken and as I said earlier that you never know how you'll react mm. until it happens to you in that reaction it wrongly, you, were fi- you were fight it was a fight yeah. and that was I'm in an alien country I don't understand what's going on I don't know how everyone else is going to react I've just had some spit in my face mm. and it was a fight reaction mm. um and you were like, yeah, it's on. <laughs> but I will never um, praise the violence because that's, that's not mm. the right way to deal with it. But I, I, I'm always thankful for having the 18, 20 other guys around me to say, actually, no, we're with you. Albeit mm. not in the right way, but we are with you. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was good. But then there were times, there was a time when it happened in England and the reaction wasn't fight at all. It was the complete opposite. Um, mm. Where I just, I think, as I said to Nasty, I just kept it into myself mm. and I, I was almost taken aback 
because I, I, I didn't know what to do or I didn't know what to say. And actually, when people say, you should have done this, you should have done that, I go, see, it happens. You know, you don't know how you react. Mm. Uh, just moving on to sort of light, lighter topics onto your yeah. identity as well now in the article. Your name, your name for I is also mm-hmm. Zimbabwe. Yeah. Just explain the background behind that as well. Yeah, so uh, funny story really in that my dad, who's obviously the white half of me, mm. um, wanted me to have a, an African name. Um, well, first of all, he, he wanted to call me Cyril after Cyril. Right. Rose. And my mum thankfully vetoed that. So she said, <laughs> "We're not having Cyril," um, which is good. So a few people do call me Cyril as a bit of a as a bit of a jibe. Um, but then, so then uh, my dad said, "Right, give him a Zimbabwe name." So uh, Farai means happiness in my mum's native language is Shona, mm-hmm. um, which has brought its challenges in that not many people can say it right first time. Spelling it for a lot of people is a bit of a nightmare. Mm. But say so the same for my surname as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some people mis- deliberately mispronounce yeah. it as well. Um, but it's been really good and actually that a lot of people are interested um, and it mm. just allows me to often connect with people and say, actually, yeah, this is my heritage, blah, 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 it's my background, I'm very open about mm. it. Are you proud of your dad for, for doing that as well? Yeah. Because he could have easily said, I want to have him a white English name. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, um, I think some people, and I can understand why, are reluctant to use their um, their heritage name, I guess mm. I'll call it, because... Cause, so my middle name is an English name, Jordan. So mm. it's, a very, it's a very easy name for people, mm. me to say to people. Um, and, and I understand why some people do use their middle name because for, for ease, for common purposes, I, mm. I, I get that. But for me, it was always a, this, this is how I've grown up. This is the name my parents chose for me. Um, and, I, I, and I'm actually very proud of like, being half Zimbabwean mm. um, and having my mum's side of the family. Mm. I think, as, again, as I said to Nassie, it would have been very easy for me to just... Um, relate to my dad's side the, the English side of my family mm. who I get on really well with it could, I could have just been fully focused then mm. um, but that would then neglect half me because I, I always say I, I'm not black and I'm, I'm not white mm. I, am, I am both mm. I'm, I'm a mix of both rather than people going oh you're not white you must be black or, or you can't be mm. this you, you... Are, there, are there particular values or principles that you took or learned from, from both your mum's side and your dad's side uh, yeah, definitely. So um, my dad's side, so my granddad was an RAF serviceman uh, in, involved in the d land in Gino Beach, World War II. Um, so some real kind of values that I guess the Hallam name I feel I have to live up mm. to, I guess, because albeit my granddad lived in a very different time and I couldn't relate to what he went through. Mm. Um, and anyone that's kind of served our country, I have the utmost admiration for because we all talk about loving our country and I and I love England more than anything. But to put your life on the line for your country is something that not many people nowadays, I think, would do. Um, but then also from my mum's side, in terms of uh, the Zimbabwean culture specifically, is around respecting your elders. There's a lot of discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of caring for family in that. Mm. I think I worked it out. I've got 31 first cousins. That's ridiculous. Um, I thought my family was yeah. <laughs> And that's just on my mum's side. So... She must be like one of nine then. Or my mum is one of six, seven. But they've all had what, four, five? Yes. Mad. More, <laughs> some more. Um, big, yeah. <laughs> Too big at times. Too big at times. And sometimes you, you bump into it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't see it. Out of the way. But then also in, in, in that family and that caring culture is just beyond what um, I, I sometimes see in that. If you ever need someone, then mm. there's always people there. In the article, you also discussed the racist tropes that you encountered from other black boys when you made yeah. white friends. Um, you know, words like Oreo, Bounty. Now, for the listeners who don't know what those words mean, obviously we both know yeah. these words because they were almost used 
uh, quite casually, I think, in yeah, schools that we went to, mm-hmm. um, both by black boys and, and white boys, yep. um, or Asian boys as well. Um, coconut is another word mm-hmm. that people yeah, use, yeah. especially, I think that was a word that um, I used to hear a lot. For, for listeners who don't know what those means or could, who could guess them, just yeah. tell them what they are and why they can be such hurtful racist terms and not perhaps something that can be almost, is was a joke back then. Yeah, and I think it was. I, I do look back at it and I don't think anyone meant to be offensive or to be hurtful because I think I, mm. I think a lot of kids as we were back just then just um, completely unfiltered yeah, no com- PC yeah, yeah completely unaware kind of you hear something oh that oh that could be funny I could get a laugh out of that mm. so you'd say it um, but I guess it in the context it, it's meant to mean you look black on the outside mm. but you come across as being white on the inside you have white characteristics yeah, in very comments yeah which I don't which I just never bought into because I always thought mm. I'm I'm not black, and how do I act white? That what is that? When you me? unpack it, it's ridiculous. I mean, we had a pre- I had a previous guest called uh, Robert Parks. He was on, and he said, you know, I got the same being mixed race because from black boys who I knew because they said I was like articulate or mm-hmm. I was attentive in yeah. class and all that sort of stuff. Like academia was almost something that was yeah, inherently negative. white. And yeah. he, when you, and when he's challenged him on that, he just he said, oh, I made him. Like, I just basically made them look how ridiculous they were. Yeah, and I think it's a real disappointment, actually, because you think about if you were to categorise character traits, behavioural mm. traits by race... Education is massive in the black community. E- education yeah. is huge, in, yeah. correctly, in, in, in the black community. But also, where some, some of the negative traits that people put with black boys, mm. you, people don't want to be associated with them. So, how, mm. so I don't believe you can... Um, attribute certain things to a race or to mm. a culture because if people were to say um, as again we used to hear as kids black, black boys were thief mm. but how, how can that be seen as just black boys commit acts of theft because mm. it's, it's just not true in the same way that you can't just say oh because because you read books oh, you're, you're just like a white boy mm. well, no because there are black people that read mm. books as well you used to say they were stealing white women in the 80s yeah. didn't they like back in the day um, so horrendous yeah. stuff it was something that I just never really got hold of, and more so because people are putting you in a box just because mm. you are of a certain way, which mm. I just never think is right for anyone. Mm. In your article, you, you bigged up your parents massively for, for how they brought you up, and yeah. I presume they'll be listening to this because you'll send it to yeah, them. But, yeah. uh, you know, what would you like to say to them as a message? Uh, yeah, thank you, I guess. Um, probably more so not through conscious of them trying mm. but more so just in terms of who they are in that very normal working class people people that have had to work to mm. earn a living and I think that's probably reflected in the people that I'm friends with and mm. the people I'm around I, I guess I'm, I'm lucky to say that none of my friends have um, no one's on a different planet to me we're all mm. very hard working we're all very sensible we're all reasonably intelligent we're all as a bare minimum be good people Mm. Um, and I guess that comes from my parents saying this is who you're going to become and not in terms of telling me this is what you're going to do but in terms of these are morals these are things we stand for and actually the things which I now look and go they're the exact same things I want to pass on as well Mm. Um, yeah your your story is a great example of how sort of two cultures can come together and produce someone who respects and appreciates both of them Mm. whilst forging your own path and achievement I think it's very important to say in this topic that Whilst identity forms a huge part, and that your mixed your mixed heritage forms a huge part of identity, it's not your sole identity. No. no. Um, but if there is anyone of mixed heritage who who might be struggling with this, who might be mm-hmm. trying to forge their own path in the world, 
and come and struggling to come to terms with that. What advice would you give them? Um, first of all, it's just to be who you are. So no one could ever say to you, oh, you have to be like this or you have to be like that because you are who you are and you believe in whatever you believe in. Mm. Um, I'm always a big believer in that if you're someone who's struggling with your identity, kind of find out what it is you want to know. So there were times when I wanted to know more about my dad's side. So let me find out more about my dad's side. Similar with my mum's side, that there are things I wanted to know more about. Um, but... I'd say don't ever feel that you're up against it because we are thankful to live in a society where you can be anyone, you can be anything and without having to worry about it. So there's no such thing as actually now because you're mixed race, you can't do this or you can't do that. You look at the people that represent us um, in athletics, in football, in all sports, they are now of all different cultures and you're starting to see it in other walks of life now that they are starting to become role models, people who can do anything, doctors, nurses, teachers, mm. they're, they're, it really is open to anyone. And, and I always say, if you're ever unsure, speaking to the people that are closest to you, because actually you'll then find the support that you were unsure was there. Mm. I always say that when you've got friends, family, people around you, those are the people that are more supportive than we ever actually think. Mm. And just a final point, because I really wanted to touch on it, that, that you mentioned in the article, was that your mum was, was a nurse, it was or is still a nurse, I believe? She is a health visitor, she was a health nurse. visitor, she was yeah. a nurse. Um, obviously, it takes a really compassionate set of characteristics mm-hmm. and a certain type of person to do that, especially mm-hmm. in the NHS. Yeah. What, through her work, what were the kind of values that she instilled in you as a person and as, and as a man as well when you were growing up? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess my mum working for a long time now in mm. Morton Forest an area that's got some high deprivation I mm. guess um, it was to one kind of be grateful for what you've got and always work hard because I guess I've been lucky that I've not necessarily been through poverty mm. um, definitely not had a silver spoon on my mouth but I've, I've definitely not had it bad I've mm. had stable families as well yeah, no divorces and stuff yeah, like that which I've, I guess is a privilege like, in I've, this day and age yeah, yeah. it is I'm yeah. very very lucky um, but also just to treat everybody the same and I think that comes from both my mum and my dad in that whether you're someone as we talked about earlier Premier League footballers on 180 grand a week or whether you're someone who's out of work you are all of of equal people can all bring the same amount to the table as a person so actually you're not better than anyone you're not worse than anyone actually you just got to be you and you'll find your way if you work hard you will find your way Um, it may not come first time of asking it may not come the second time of asking but eventually you'll find a way you actually, yeah, this, this is what I want to do, this is where I'm really happy. Um, and I think that's, that's been the biggest thing for her is just to, just to work hard and just to be relent, um, relentless in working hard, I think. But I won't change for you, my love Right till the end A final topic of conversation, Brian, it's one I have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So, so firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Yeah, good at the moment. Um, I think uh, the biggest thing that's helped me to do that is just to appreciate and understand that everyone has mental health. Mm-hmm. And that it's Mantra not... we always say on, on the Just Checking In pod as well. Yeah, yeah, so it's not just issues or you're struggling, that actually you can be in good health as well. Mm. Um, and I think that that's, that's really helped me understand that actually I, I think I'm doing all right at the moment. Mm. If you felt comfortable saying, mm-hmm. what, what mental health conditions do you live with? Um, it, but if you don't have them, um, how, do, how does mental health impact your life in your sort of day-to-day? Yeah, so um, when I was playing football full-time, um, I went through a, 
spout of uh, mild, I'd say, depression, because it wasn't deep depression, but uh, it was a real change in my life. My body was being put through some real physical tough times mm. every day. Um, and, and that was tough because I was, I was young. I didn't really know how to deal with it. Um, but I was thankful to have a, a, a really good manager at the time who kind of put his arm around me, helped me, kind of helped me see the bigger picture and that helped me get over it. Um, in terms of now, um, I don't think I live with any um, active, sort of Long-term yeah, sort of conditions now. Enough okay. active, but, I mean, I've got people around me who have and, um, and who do. So I guess I see it in that sense. And I guess for me, I always try and see myself as a supporting network. But I, 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 I do think I have a quite a, a fair understanding of the picture. Mm. And what age you, do you think you were when you first realised that these feelings or, or thoughts weren't just a physical thing? Um, if you could pinpoint it. I, th- I think I probably truly understood it when I was around 22. Considering mm-hmm. that I first probably had them when I was 16. Mm. Um, I think I truly understood it when I was 22. I think when I was 16, it was just a, a I need to deal with this kind of thing. Mm. Um, but as I got older, it became a, I actually know that was something more than what I thought it was. Mm. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that worked and which ones that haven't? Yeah, so, um, silly enough, I have a list of things on my iPhone notes, mm. um, and, and it's a list of things that I know I can always uh, turn to in terms mm. of what's important. Uh, so on there is family, uh, my girlfriends, my work, my football, my nephews, my niece, um, things whichever I'm feeling down about. I've got pictures, I've got videos that I can just watch, and I know that'll bring mm. a sense of realism. Mm. Um, and I guess for me, it's kind of positive re- reinforcement on my mind as to why am I doing what I'm doing? Because there'll be times when we'll all put in extra hours at work, we'll have bad days, we'll have good days. Same for me at football, I'll have long days of football, I'll have good days of football, I'll have bad days of football. Sometimes I just need a break from that. Actually, why, why am I doing all this? And that's a, that's a good reminder. Mm. Toxic masculinity is something we, we try and break down a lot in this pod, Fry. Yeah. Um, but someone of, of mixed heritage, mm-hmm. you're probably uniquely placed to have seen how perhaps it's viewed amongst different ethnic groups yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you seen mental health discussed amongst perhaps your white male friends as opposed to your friends who are or black or more widely Bay and me? Are there differences you've seen um, or are there perceptions or expectations that are perhaps different to, to white men as opposed to, say, black men? Yeah, so um, stereotypically and I guess historically in the black, specifically in the African culture, uh, it was taboo. It was... Mm you don't have mental health, mm. you have to get on with it. Um, and that's changed and that's changing, which is a positive. Um, I think in amongst my friends, we've definitely become a lot more open. Um, I'm, I'm quite open in the fact that I've lost two people very close to me through mental health, both mm. men in in their 20s. Um, mm. And that really brings it home is that when a tragedy happens, because that's what it is, it's a tragedy, that you end up um, having to rally around and actually where you might have been uncomfortable before you think I'm even more uncomfortable in losing someone mm. so, so they know, change you that, that oh massively yeah. yeah so um, I lost my cousin and I lost a former teammate who mm. was a really good mate of mine both within the space of a year um, through ultimately what was a mental health illness uh, mm. for, for both um, yeah it changed me massively because before I was always I'll speak to people if I think they need it and I was always, I was always very reactive with it. But if they're silent, you can't tell, can you? Yeah, yeah. and you never know. And mm. as it was with both of them, you just wouldn't have, you wouldn't have had a clue. Mm. Uh, massive, massive shocks. Um, so now, actually, I um, will just go to people every week. So every week in my work calendar, Thursday at three o'clock, it will say, uh, 
just a reminder that comes up to say just to message someone new or ring mm. someone just new. to check in just to who yeah. I haven't spoken to for a, in a long while and that could be cousins that can be friends could be ex-teammates um, so people often think I'm pestering them for something wanting something but <laughs> sometimes people think about me as well yeah. I message you Fred what do you want I'm like I'm just checking in mate don't yeah. worry um, and it's helped I mean I think it's I can tell when it's a bit alien to some people because mm. people are like what I'm like no I'm just seeing genuinely because mm. I think nowadays that's not always done mm. how are you mm. like we, we, we all say are you alright how are you but I don't think people actually mean it people don't ask twice do yeah, they yeah people yeah. are like, uh, people just say are oh, you alright yeah I'm alright you yeah yeah and that doesn't mean that's anything. it yeah. it's a complete non sequitur literally it's part of a conversation that we might as well not have now because mm. it, it's just redundant but actually saying how are you what's going on what's new what, what have you been doing how are you feeling mm. um, that, I think that's helped and that's also helped me in that I now feel far more comfortable in talking about it myself so if, mm. if ever I'm feeling down my girlfriend is brilliant in that I know I can be so open with her and it's never anything mm. thought about on the flip side she, she, she's a massive massive support mm. especially in terms of when I'm away from home a lot um, with, with football with work um, she's brilliant but also in terms of my mates around me I think that of my close mates we're all very very open mm. um, and but also with some of the wider people that I know I think mm. it's, it's now becoming far more accepted which is good mm. one thing that I I'm trying to instill a bit more in the advocacy work that I do is try and change his perception of what positive masculinity means. I don't like this idea of masculinity sometimes being hijacked by reprehensible human beings, basically. That's the only way I'm going to put it as a politically correct answer. Um, In your eyes, what what does positive masculinity mean, do you think? Um, I think it's... Being because this is your own definition, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's actually a really good question. I think it's being a comfortable in yourself, and as as you will know, suicide being the biggest killer in men under forty. Mm. Um, that will, I guess, highlight the fact that there's maybe a fair few men who aren't comfortable in themselves. Mm. So that I think is first and foremost. So actually, being a strong man is just being happy in yourself. Mm. And, being able to talk and be open and not say, oh no, I can't talk about that or I can't talk about that. Because mm. that all that, I don't think that helps. Um, I think positive, being a positive, strong man is being um, able to accept that you don't know the answer or that you are wrong or that you don't know everything. Mm. I think we have this thing of, I've got to be able to solve everything or I need mm. to know everything, um, which just isn't, which massively isn't the case that it's okay to say, I don't know or I can't help or I can't mm. do this. Um, we always have a case of then oh, I'll take something on because I feel I need to be able to do it um, and sometimes we can't mm. that's, that's human we're, we're all human we can't all do everything mm. um, so yeah there's quite a bit to it but um, maybe those are some of the points mm. I think that's a good definition um, I'm just finally why do you think in previous years or in previous generations why has it taken us as a gender so long for be able to express vulnerability, to be able to express emotion and, and not be confined to these ideals that perhaps we were given in school of either violence, sexual braggadocio, or other forms of braggadocio, basically, and, and not be confined to these, these these narrow archetypes, basically. Yeah, I don't know if it's something that's come kind of historically through society in that men do this, women do this. Um, and I think for a long while now, um, and for a real positive, We've spoken about empowering women, mm. and I now see some incredible women through work. Some very young, some mm. extremely old. Um, I think I think the women in my life are testament to that. Um, in that empowering women now, and that 
I see women leading the world mm. in, and I think that would never have happened mm. years ago. So there's been so much to, done to do with that. But it's always stayed very similar with men in that oh, men must do this, men must build this. Breadwinners and, yeah, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, must go earn yeah. money and I can't earn less money than my female, in the female in my life or I have to be able to want to do the DIY mm. or I've got to go to football. Or, mm. That's just something that needs to be challenged more, I think. I don't think it's at a point yet of everyone accepting that. Um, I still think there's a bit of a cultural uh, discomfort mm. with men saying, actually, I'm not going to be this dominant masculine male that I feel I am. Because everyone will have certain things they're good at, everyone will have other things which they're maybe not so good at. And just because you're a man who's no good at DIY, as a, as a poor example, probably, it doesn't make you less of a man, but I think in some people's eyes that still does. Um, so yeah, breaking that down, I think that happens with time. I think the the modern generation, I, I say the modern man in a very loose term, um, making them just comfortable in knowing what you can and can't do is, is really, really positive. I think the worst thing that we could do is go uh, backwards in terms of men do this, women do this, and actually that it's just a case of we can do whatever. Um, you'll be good at certain things. Some people will be good at traditionally masculine things. Mm but you don't always have to be. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. Farai, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. Maybe let's try and make it not another 14 years yeah. before we see each other. Hopefully around yeah. Christmas before we Definitely. see each other. Um, as always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your work friends or um, colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling really generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. It's true.